We are looking at John 16, verses 5 to 15, as we begin to study Jesus' spirit theology. And we have entitled this study, Going and Coming. Read with me this passage, beginning with verse 4. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you, what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. I'd like to read this passage again reading from the New Living Translation. But now I am going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking, where am I going? Instead, you grieve because what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the Advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you 
whatever he receives from me. This is a wonderful passage. It reveals to us that Jesus continues to be deeply involved in our lives. Both from the position of where he now is, that he has gone back to the Father, and through the Holy Spirit in our lives right now. Deeply involved in his plans and his purposes for us. Jesus is focused in this dialogue with his disciples on the Holy Spirit. We have previously studied Jesus' father theology, to which he devoted almost the entirety of chapter 14. Chapter 15 was his viability theology, where he connected the disciples to himself and their viability to their identity with him, to their life of being deeply connected in abiding in him. And now Jesus moves to the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. We have noted previously, we will note again this evening, how Jesus, during these chapters, establishes beyond question the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus said something in this passage we have just read that we have previously heard him say. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. In chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus said, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. In chapter 15 and verse 26, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. In our study of the previous paragraph, verses 1 through 4, which were a continuation of what Jesus was saying in chapter 15, we again saw Jesus' emphasis on his clarifying ministry. Repeatedly, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Over and over we have heard those words from the mouth of Jesus as we have followed him through the Gospel of John. His sent one mission, something that he emphasized about himself repeatedly, was to represent the Father, to cut through the lies and the misrepresentations that have been perpetrated and bring a true revelation of the Father, His nature, His character, His heart, His plans. Now Jesus tells the disciples that He is going away, and when He goes away, He will send the Spirit 
for the same mission and purpose. Now, although this passage is the most lengthy of Jesus' teachings on the Holy Spirit, he has previously this evening with his disciples, both in the upper room and then after they have left and are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, referred to the Spirit. And with those references, he laid the groundwork for what he is now saying here in chapter 16. In his first reference in chapter 14, Jesus used two of the three names that he would ascribe to the Holy Spirit as indications of the Spirit's work, calling him the Counselor or the Advocate and Spirit of Truth. In chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Advocate to help you, and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. It's a very important theological statement, pressed into one sentence. I will ask the Father. He will give you another advocate. Remember in 1 John chapter 2, John writes, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Righteous One. As our substitute, as the atoning offering for our sins, as our great high priest taken from among the people, Jesus is our advocate. But going back to the Father, he tells the disciples, I'll ask the Father, he will give you another advocate. Oh, we are never left alone. We always have an advocate. At this very moment, we have Jesus who is at the Father's right hand interceding for us. We have the Holy Spirit who also intercedes for us. What an incredible commitment by the Godhead to address our needs and our spiritual concerns, to fulfill the purposes of God that he, through the work of salvation, has begun in us. Jesus went on to say, another advocate to help you and be with you forever. We talk about the covenant that God has made with us and that he is a covenant-keeping God, a God of covenant commitment to his people. What a commitment. Another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. Subsequently, Jesus told his disciples, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said 
to you. With these statements, Jesus has firmly established, as we said, the doctrine of the Trinity. The deep and eternal commitment and involvement of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has presented the Holy Spirit as the indispensable spiritual helper and guide for his disciples. Over and over, we have seen how father-centric Jesus is in his mission, in his speaking, in his activity. Everything he does is to draw attention to the Father, is to fulfill the Father's will. He does what the Father tells him to do. He speaks the words that the Father tells him to say. That is his mission. He is centered on the Father. The disciple, or the Holy Spirit rather, will be Christocentric. His purpose is to make Jesus known. The Father sent Jesus to make him known. Jesus will send the Spirit to make him known. Jesus was the truth way to the Father. The Spirit will be the truth revealer, guiding those who believe in Jesus into all truth. Now, as the truth revealer, the Holy Spirit's specific work, as we have said, is to reveal Jesus. He is to bring us into a relationship that reveals Christ in us and through us. This was something that we studied in John chapter 14, verses 22 to 26, in our study that was entitled, The Doctrine of Revealing. How God reveals himself and how the Holy Spirit comes to reveal Christ to this world through us. Because he is the revealer, the spirit of truth, it is only possible to truly enter into the life of Jesus, who is the truth, through the work of the Holy Spirit within one's life. Just as Jesus is one way to the Father, the Holy Spirit is the one way through which we enter into the truthfulness of the life of Christ. Oswald Chambers wrote, The touchstone of the Holy Spirit's work in us is to answer our Lord's question, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Our Lord makes human destiny depend on that one thing, who men say he is, because the revelation of who Jesus is is given only by the Holy Spirit. Jesus introduces 
in this expanded passage about the Holy Spirit, some particulars about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he said, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Just as we have seen that the Holy Spirit is the indispensable helper, guide into all truth, He is also the indispensable critic for ensuring that people come to the truth. Again, in chapter 14, Jesus said, But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There is another indispensable role of the Holy Spirit that the disciples can't yet appreciate. And Jesus can only encourage them with words that only later they will understand. In the previous chapter, Jesus told his disciples, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send from the Father, The Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And then he said, and you also must testify. Later this night, when pressed to associate himself with Jesus, Peter will vehemently, again and again and again, deny any connection to Jesus. He will fail as a witness. The truth is that no follower of Christ can be a witness for Christ without the enabling power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples just before his ascension back to heaven. He had also emphasized this to them. Luke records for us at the end of his gospel, when Jesus was with his disciples, there in the room where they were meeting in Jerusalem. The fact that they needed the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be his witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What the disciples were incapable of being and doing before the day of Pentecost, they were competent to be and do through the Holy Spirit who was with them and within them. Something that Jesus emphasized very specifically in John 14, 17b. The Holy Spirit will be with you and within you. 
The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, emphasized this. He said, we are not competent in ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our competency is from God. It is He who has made us competent ministers of the new covenant. Not through the letter, because the letter kills, but through the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. Jesus also tells his disciples here that the Holy Spirit will come to perform a unique truth-revealing role. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Think back with me to the conversation that Jesus had during the night with Nicodemus, the outstanding teacher of the law. He said in verse 18 of John chapter 3, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, it is not well-spoken words that makes for an effective witness. Nor is it a morally upright life. Nicodemus was a morally upright man. The Apostle Paul could claim, concerning the law, I was blameless. He would have been considered among the most morally upright people. That is not what makes for an effective witness. It is the indwelling presence and working of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus' appointed witnesses, we carry on his ministry of reconciliation. Something that Paul emphatically emphasized in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. God was in the world, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore God's ambassadors, through whom God makes his plea. We implore you, be reconciled to God. You see, it is not our role to count people's sins against them. Any more than we can be an effective witness just by well-spoken words. It's not our role to be the accuser. It is the unique spiritual role of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
Nothing we say, regardless of how appropriate or applicable it may be, will be received without the invisible spiritual work of the Holy Spirit. In a recent article on Newsbreak, Walter Reen wrote, I'm so tired of having someone stomp up, get in my face, and scream, Jesus died for you. You're assuming that I'm a sinner. Maybe I'm not. You don't know. Besides, I don't believe in your religion, so don't hit me with a value judgment before you even know me. He went on in the following paragraph to talk about the absurdity of Christians applying original sin to babies who have never done anything wrong. And then he said, Where are the good Christians arguing that the philosophy of original sin should be discarded? Where are they? You see, nothing is more offensive to people than the belief that I am desperately wicked. Nothing is more offensive than being told that I am totally depraved. It is something that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. The truth about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Jesus is letting the disciples know can only be convincingly communicated through the truth-revealing conviction of the Holy Spirit. Think about this for a moment. Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power to be my witnesses. He said in Luke's gospel, you wait, you are my witnesses, but you wait until you have been empowered from on high. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and preached. He preached a message that was deeply convicting. He declared that the people were guilty of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Old Testament fulfillment of the prophecies, like those of David, regarding the Messiah. And as he preached, anointed by the Holy Spirit, the hearts of the people were, be, were convicted, and they cried out, What must we do to be saved? Peter said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They did, and that day, 3,000 of them were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What do you think would have happened if Peter had preached the day before, let alone a week before? What took place on the day of Pentecost only took place because of the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit speaking, convicting, convincing, sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
can only be communicated through the truth-revealing, convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This is something that Jesus wants his disciples to understand. Not just the twelve that are there, but you and I as well. We can think of other incidents in the ministry of the Apostle Paul when people endeavored to do things without the empowering enablement of the Holy Spirit. They were terribly ineffective. In fact, the disciples have experienced that same kind of ineffectiveness as they have ministered with Jesus, such as the time when Jesus was on the mountain during the event of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were there with him. Meanwhile, down at the foot of the mountain, there was a crowd, and the disciples were endeavoring to cast the demon out of a boy who had been brought to the disciples by his father. They weren't able to do it. The father pleaded with Jesus when he came down from the mountain. Jesus delivered the young boy from that bondage, that oppression. Later, it was privately that the disciples asked him, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus said to them, this kind comes out only by much prayer and fasting. Something that Jesus gave himself to for 40 days before he began his ministry. He was led into that period of fasting and prayer by the Holy Spirit. He came out of that period of fasting and prayer, the scripture tells us, in the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples were doing what they did. Because Jesus had sent them out to do the work. But they were ineffective because they did not have the enablement of the Holy Spirit that was needed. Oh, how often the church is ineffective in its witness. We say the right things. We put it in a very attractive and aesthetically pleasing context. We may even try to contrast our moral uprightness against the depravity of other people. But we are without the presence of the Holy Spirit. We try to approach things often from a perspective that God has not entrusted to us. We urge people to be reconciled to God. And we seek the enablement of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus did, and just as the apostles would do after his ascension before the day 
of Pentecost, and then on after, on an ongoing basis. We seek the enablement of the Holy Spirit because there are things that no matter how right we might be, cannot be accomplished by our words. They must be accomplished by the truth-revealing conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at one final thing. Big picture or little picture. Jesus said, now I am going to the one who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Earlier this evening, when Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, shared the Lord's Supper with them, gave them the new commandment, and then began talking about going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? The climax of Jesus' father-sent mission is just hours away. But the nearest that the disciples have come to expressing interest in where Jesus is going is to say, we don't know where you are going. Earlier this evening, Philip also said in part of that same dialogue as Thomas, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. To which Jesus replied, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? When you read this passage here in chapter 16, you get the sense that Jesus is wondering, isn't anyone interested enough in what I am saying to ask where I am going? Why I am going to the one who sent me? Jesus declared in John chapter 5, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. The most critical event in human history is just hours away. The culmination of decisions made by the Godhead before the creation of the world. Psalm 2 and verse 7. Today, you are my son. I have become your father. Revelation 13 and verse 8. The lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. God chose us in Christ 
before the creation of the world. When Jesus goes to the cross, in just 12 hours, it is the culmination of these decisions that were made by the Godhead in eternity past. Even after all the time they have been with Jesus, they can't grasp the big picture of why he was sent what he has come to do, and why he is returning to the one who sent him. How like these disciples we are. So often we are unable to see what, is God, what God is doing. All we can see is our little picture and how any changes will affect us. You are filled with grief because I have said these things. How much do you and I think about where Jesus is now and what he is doing? Are we preoccupied with our little picture? So preoccupied that we don't think about his promised return to us any more than the disciples were thinking about his return to the one who had sent him? Do we see what is wrong in the midst of our circumstances instead of seeing the God who causes all things to work together for good? Or is where we are going so dim that we can't see the unseen glory that outweighs our light and momentary troubles? Or are we unable to understand and appreciate the process that uses present difficulties to achieve a faith that will be proven priceless when Jesus returns? We are often like the disciples on this evening. Not asking Jesus where he is going. Not trusting the Lord with what he is doing. Rather, filled with grief because we only see our little picture and not his big picture. I wonder if perhaps years later, Peter was thinking about this evening in light of all that he now understood as an apostle many years later when he wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. On that evening, 
the disciples were filled with grief. Peter was also filled with arrogance. In his little picture perspective, he could only see himself. He couldn't see what Jesus was saying about him or about God's plan for him as the Savior of the world. All these years later, though, Peter had gained the big picture. God's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Something that far outweighs anything that we experience in this life. It is reserved for us in heaven. And you and I are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. Here's big picture, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us into this perspective. It is one that the Apostle talks, the Apostle Paul talks about. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This work of the Holy Spirit that transforms us from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That enables us to see what is unseen by faith, recognizing that what we see is temporary that enables us to yield to the working of the Holy Spirit, giving us the perspective so that we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. But we understand God's purposes for us and what He wants to accomplish in our lives and through our lives. May the Holy Spirit give us eyes to see. May He enable us to grasp the plan of God, His great plan, His part for us, the glory that He has prepared for us that outweighs anything of this life. May our eyes truly be on the big picture, on our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight for the hope that you have given us, a hope that is an anchor for our souls, anchored where Christ has gone, into the most holy place, Father, thank you. If he can be dislodged from, its position, from his position, our hope 
can be dislodged. If his advocacy on our part can be terminated, then our position in Christ can be terminated. But not so, you have given us the spirit of truth who is with us forever. You have given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have given us one who is able to save completely those who come to him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to see things as you see them. Our hearts set on things above where Christ is at your right hand. Our minds set on things above and not on an earthly human perspective. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit who is always with us to advocate, to help, to guide, we want to be fully surrendered. We don't want to live a life by our own initiative, our own perspective and understanding. We want a spirit-led life, a spirit-filled life. Father, we pray, enable us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you again for the privilege of opening and studying together without fear or consequence tonight the words of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. May they richly, powerfully be effective within us. We pray in his name. Amen.